smartcast you're listening to a hindustan times production brought to you by hd smartcast hi this is manjula narayan national books editor hindustan times and this is the books and authors podcast it's a weekly podcast where i speak to authors who've got a new book out hi so today we have with us ramya ramamurthy hi ramya hi manjula So she's the author of Branded in History Fresh Marketing Lessons from Vintage Brands. So Rami this book is like quite amazing in 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 the number of like factoids that I didn't know you know there's really interesting stuff in the book about marketing in India and in the pre-independence era right Yeah uh, thank you so much for saying that it it was actually um like a bunch of trivia that i came across while doing research on marketing and branding that actually led to led me to think this is like an underserved category in terms of you know we don't know much about this era of marketing and it was pretty yeah. much the era in which it was born uh, yeah. in india for sure and definitely globally as well so i wanted to find out you know i'd heard my grandparents talk about the toothpaste they used or the soap they used mm. or i'd heard my father hum some radio jingle that he had heard as a child and mm. i'd wondered you know what are these brands where did they go like why do why do we not have them around anymore so it came out of the curiosity to know more about brands from an era where there wasn't much data about how brands were marketed produced and distributed mm. and also to find out you know where did some of these brands go how can we avoid the lessons uh, how can we avoid the perils and sort of uh, mistakes that some of them made how do we learn from their successes um, mm. so really a sort of deep dive into a century of marketing between two important markers of hi- indian history you know the mm. uh, indian war of independence was 1857 we finally won independence in 1947 so mm. pretty much an a century of marketing that happened in which there was a middle class that was rising they were moving to products that were being made in india for the first time and mm. they were also consuming advertising that was dis- deciding what they were going to buy for them you know um mm. so i was really interested in all of that really okay should i read this flap so that listeners know you know what um, they have this sort of capsule of what the book is about yeah that's a great idea please do okay What did advertising campaigns look like 100 years ago? How did early brands capture the imagination of Indian consumers? How deep are the roots of modern consumer behavior in the country? Lux soaps, Jabakusam hair oil, Woodward's gripe water, Atlas cycles, Dalda, Mafatlal textiles. These evergreen brands have immortalized themselves by capitalizing on emerging trends for almost 100 years. these popular brands as well as others le- others lesser known though equally iconic can teach modern day brands a thing or two about surviving in a market that is in constant flux focusing on a century bookended by two movements for independence branded in history draws readers into the fascinating story of how colonial indian brands both homegrown and foreign were produced distributed and marketed between 1847 and 1947 a time when branding as a concept was still in its infancy from consumer goods to consumables household utilities to toiletries and heavy industries to medical supplies this book explores the reasons behind the successes and failures of the earliest brands in the subcontinent and presents valuable and relevant marketing lessons from an era gone by 
So, so that's what the book is about. So, Ramya, you know, while I was reading it, I mean, uh, the one thing that struck me is that, yeah, 1847 and 1947. And, and after 1947, the, the whole partition thing, I mean, it was such a kind of catastrophe that uh, uh, it affected a lot of, a lot, and, and that itself, that in itself is a book, I think. You know, when I was reading your book, you know, I, that, that struck me. So you want to talk about that? Oh, yeah. Let's talk at, start at the most sort of uh, dramatic moment in history for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, mm-hmm. when I was uh, researching the book, I um, spoke to this uh, other author called Anshar Malhotra, who's actually, you know, yes. written about partition in great detail and the sort yes. of ordinary objects that... Um, sort of still fuel memories of that uh, time and Mm. she had some great insights about the era but it was also like it is a book in itself like that was a whole other book about you know the trauma of partition and what it did not just to people but to businesses to like uh, productivity in India we lost like nearly a fourth of our or or a third of our um, productive land we lost Mm. um, you know there but the port of Karachi was a hugely important port for businesses to sort of ply their goods from or receive goods or import or export. Yes. And that mm. was then reoriented to Bombay and the other ports in the south of India or the west of east of India. And mm. uh, not just these sort of facts and figures, there was so much else that was happening at the time in terms of, you know, how did India assert itself as a nation? I remember in one of the chapters, it says that, you know, Godrej Industries, for instance, was instructed to write Made in India on all yes. its products, especially soaps that were going out to like Pakistan, because they were still <laughs> supplying goods to that region. Um, mm-hmm. They were just not, you know, making it there anymore. They had retreated the business from that uh, sort of territory. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's inserting how they assert the idea of nationhood, right? Because in some products that were still being shipped to Pakistan, they drew the map of undivided India, which is quite yes. a flex, I thought. <laughs> <laughs> thought that too when I read it as a god. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's quite the thing to be putting out there. And uh, you know, um I think the memory of being a single nation against uh, sort of operating against a colonial power was still recent. And a lot of businesses had come up, uh, uh, you know, while they were getting getting crushed by the heel of this colonial power, they sort of still managed to emerge uh using uh, capital and resources and bright minds from all over the region, right? Like, mm. uh, we know that Punjab National Bank was started by Lala Lajpat Rai, but it actually had like a Parsi, a Sardar, a mm. Hindu, uh, uh, you know, they had all these various sort of people on the board that actually started the bank. And these mm. were these banks were sort of started in Lahore and then had to migrate to Delhi or wherever, or Punjab, as the case may be. So, they did the same journey that a lot of people actually did at that yes. time. And mm-hmm. it was very fascinating. But yeah, that's a whole other book. Then mm. I found it very interesting how Hamdard, uh, uh, you point out how Hamdard sorted this issue with one brother staying here and one brother. Yeah, yeah. It seemed very rational almost. Like it was like, look, we can't deprive both <laughs> nations of Ruafza. Uh, we have to have Ruafza in both nations. So let's just split the... And, and that sort of split in the family happens partition was one of the reasons but it happens a lot amongst Mm. these brands because the succession is really the thing that sort of drives where the company will go and I thought Mm. that was very neatly done where they said okay both of you get Ruavza we just Mm. have one brother in each country yeah (laughs) okay okay so tell me how you uh, uh, set about writing this book because it seems like a lot of work 
Yeah. And, you know, I'm not a historian. I'm not like trained. I'm not trained in history or in as an archivist. So it was a mm. steep learning curve for sure. Uh, mm. I am a journalist who used to cover branding and marketing in CNBC at one point in time, which okay. is really my in into this whole uh fascinating topic uh, wow. so I met with people who you know call themselves experts who do this for a living who mm. catalog who source who like write about history of brands uh, mm. and, and it's a very sort of rising very niche very uh, uh, small uh, area of uh, study actually in India you know like business history mm. is something that we should be really doing more for but yes. it's, it's a thing that's maybe being done out of IIM Ahmedabad or mm. you know in a few corporate archives across the country which you can literally count uh, on your hands, on, on your fingertips. So, I think it's because, um, well, maybe in general, we don't seem to think history is worth investing in until mm. it's too late. Yes. Like, you know, a lot yeah. of these people might retrospectively say, hey, that would have been a good time to start cataloging why we took certain business decisions and why we launched certain products and how did they fare? Because it's a great way for the company to learn as well, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like a point of pride. It's not an ego thing. It's not a way to show off their history. It's also a great lesson in terms of learning from your past. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of times resources are just lost. Like a lot of pre-independent stuff is just conjecture right now because they didn't invest in that at that point in terms of documenting it. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of it is also the rigor of maintaining records is perhaps something companies don't want to invest in just as they're trying to sort of establish and grow. And, yeah. you know, maybe that's just a headache they don't need at this point, or I don't know. I really don't know what the reason is, but I wish there were more corporate archives. And I hope that, you know, uh, I hope some of the people reading this book realize that, hey, my company really needs to document what it's doing right now so that 100 years later, some author can figure out what we did, whether it was good or bad. Mm. And you specifically say that you don't, you don't want to indulge in nostalgia. I mean, in the book, in the introduction. But while I was reading it, you know, one can't help. I mean, you talk about Pali biscuits and, you know, and yeah. uh, uh, thumbs up and you talk about Premier Padmini. I mean, you know, these were the brands like that were around you know, pre-liberalization and then sort of maybe not parlay and all, but the others did fade out. And you yeah. talk, talk about that as well. So yeah, I think like they, they so these are the brands, the, the brands you mentioned are actually like the superstars, right? Yeah. Everyone knows them. Everyone knows yeah. that, that they survived or they didn't because of reasons either due to their company or because of just how history progressed. But the large majority of the brands in the book are also brands that people just didn't know of. Like even now, mm. it's like rare to find someone who is fairly acquainted with the idea of, say, an Afghan snow, which ah. was like a fairness <laughs> and, uh, you know, yes. like a cream from an era where, you know, it got its name from the king of Af- Afghanistan because yeah. he said the product reminded him of the snow in his country. And mm. he, they were the first to sort of do, um, you know, Uh, marketing in a very modern way like they sponsored Miss India and stuff which was uh, Mm. very ahead of its time so there were all these really niche really small brands doing really cool things marketing wise that Mm. a lot of managers in today's uh, time would probably think hey I'm still doing this so it probably started in that era you know, mm-hmm. like using brand ambassadors, for instance. Everyone thinks Lux did it with Leela Chitnis first in the 30s. But Palmolive was already talking to a bunch of actresses of that time, including Solochna and stuff. So it was a common practice of that time. But mm-hmm. we only remember Lux and Leela Chitnis, for instance. So I was just wondering, what are the other, you know, lessons from that time that maybe need to be unearthed a bit? Brands that did cool things that we don't even know about anymore. 
Hmm. And I found it interesting that how those, some of the brands, I mean, in the 30s, you know, like you mentioned how they, uh, uh, they use um, Rabindranath Tagore and uh, uh, Annie Besant as ambassadors almost. I mean, like they were the original influencers. Yeah, right? yeah, so, absolutely. And, and that's kind of different from the purely uh, physical appeal of an actress or, a, you know, a film star. Yeah, you know, like when you, when you mention like a film star doing a Lux ad, that tracks because they're still doing film star. I mean, film stars yeah. are still getting signed on as uh, ambassadors for these brands, right? Yeah. But a Rabindranath Tagore, uh, Annie Besant, who's not even Indian, she's Irish. Yeah. Um, Hiralal Gandhi, the uh, Gandhi descendant yes. who sort of decided to market Godrej soaps. <laughs> Kamla Nehru was on one of the labels that textile uh, companies used to put out. Uh, Sarojini Naidu, like name a leader from that time and they've all been associated with brands either as a testimonial that they gave which was actually in some time some cases unpaid for right so it's not like it was a transaction it was just them Mm -hmm. doing public service saying hey this is a made in india brand i know you guys care about swadeshi so please use this and you know work towards the emancipation of our people so to speak Mm -hmm. and also just putting their weight behind industries that needed that support like uh, Mahatma yeah. Gandhi comes up a ton of times in the book as just someone who just knew he was very canny about what his endorsement meant mm. and he used it very judiciously as well. And and you also see like industrialists like J.R.D. Tata uh, acknowledging that in a letter to his dad mm. saying that, you know, when Gandhi visited our factory uh, in Jamshedpur, we should have captured it on film like the French uh, companies do so that it would be an eternal sort of record of uh, how uh, he visited it and what he thought of it. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's crazy to think that these guys, the freedom fighters were the influencers of their time, along with the royals, because that was, again, another sort of theme amongst a lot of brands that sort of wanted a royal association with their product. Mm. Um, you know, like they wanted the packaging to look like a jewelry box that a royal yes. might have used, or they yes. wanted um, royal funding in the cases of Mysore soap or, you know, sandwich yeah. soap or uh, a lot of affiliation also sprung from that. And I guess that's also, that also makes sense because these were the guys that um, had the wealth to seem uh, aspirational to the mm. common man of that time. Hmm. And you you say that like things like moti soap and uh, uh, and and this uh, sandalwood uh, soap are available online. I mean, I thought they vanished completely. They have, Mysore but you know, if you look up like an eBay or you look up like one of these sites which does like they're like a curiosity item right now. Uh, oh. I mean, Mysore soap is still available, but moti, uh, you know, like it's still there, like. Even things like Afghan snow, I find like when I did a Google search for it, it was on eBay India, for instance. So I, mean, you I don't buy, know. You, you can buy fresh Afghan snow. I don't know if it's fresh. I don't know if it, if there's if it's even usable anymore. But it's there's one product or version of it that's still out there that someone would probably want to pay good money to buy. I don't know why, but <laughs> no, it might be from 1975. You know. <laughs> yeah. Can't use it, but we could probably display it somewhere. But, you know, like like a couple of people I met for the book were the sort of uh, collectors who had just, you know, they had uh, Rajan Jaika, for instance, the former. Yes. He's the convener of Intac in Mumbai and he's a barrister mm-hmm. as well. Uh, he sort of said that, uh, you know, go through my uh, archive of uh, these sort of, you know, all these British stores in India at that time had mm-hmm. uh, catalogs that you could just order stuff out of. So... 
you could order a Rolls Royce for 99 yes. rupees, you know, out of a catalog. I can't imagine that now. Like, I can't imagine doing stuff like that now. It was obviously catering to the uh, uh, to the sort of British uh, who were in India and the really wealthy of India who could afford this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was one of the modes of advertising, you know. Hmm. Yeah, it seems bizarre that you can just look at a catalog and say, I want to buy this car. Yeah. <laughs> And not just any car, a Rolls Royce. Yeah. And can you imagine like uh, the rest of India is probably struggling to put together like six annas to buy a soap. But you yeah. also have Indians at that time who could afford a Rolls Royce at 99 yeah. rupees, which was probably like more than a Indian probably saw in their lifetime. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. But another thing that, uh, you know, the whole thing about how um, Swadeshi and, you know, attaching a label, you're affiliating your label to the movement was such a successful move. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Uh, and this was particularly uh, as the movement also became more prominent, right? You don't hear mm-hmm. of Swadeshi as a marketing tagline before the turn of the 20th century, really, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in the early eras, like maybe between the, maybe the last bits of the 19th century, there was an awakening of this sort of consciousness uh, that Mm. became concrete as the struggle, freedom struggle also gained traction, you know. And uh, it was like identifying a marketing trend that we still continue to do. I mean, they Mm. just read the room. They realized that the colonial powers had I mean, there were a bunch of economic reasons for this as well, right? There was yeah. uh, there, there was money that was flowing out of the country. It mm-hmm. was difficult to find funding to fund Indian products. Uh, if they did want the colonial powers to leave, they want they should they would have had to have enough homegrown uh, industries and brands and products that could sustain them even after they left. So it was all mm-hmm. a mix of what was needed and what was already happening. Um, mm-hmm. So, which is why you see like. Uh, products across the range identifying with this as a theme because A, they were incentivized by the leaders of that time. Like they sat down with these people and said, we need Indian steel. Can you make it for us? Or we Mm -hmm. need Indian pharmaceuticals. Can you make it for us? And, you Mm -hmm. know, then these leaders agreed. Or it was also brands capitalizing on it, seeing that that's the way the trend was going, you know, like uh, why would you have Annie Besant tell someone that I endorse this soap? Uh, mm-hmm. It doesn't really track, actually, if you think about it, because she's not really Indian. She's not really someone I look up to in terms of my cleanliness or my hygiene habits. You know, it's it's not a perfect fit, but it was in that time because she was yeah. uh, a, she was an I- idol, like she was iconic and people yes. did what these people told them to do. So mm-hmm. uh, I think it was a mix of opportunism and a idealistic sort of era where they were working in service of something larger than just building a brand or building a business. They were actually working in service of nation building because these companies would survive after the British had left. Hmm. But in the case of Annie Besant, I mean, maybe historically we've, we've forgotten how she important she was. But at that point, since she was, you know, she took on the mantle of, you know, she became a, um, a sort of de facto Indian by becoming a nationalist and and endorsing all these, you know, pro-Indian uh, views. Yeah. So I guess, you know, I guess it, it fits in that yeah. old nationalist mold. Yeah. Right? So, but uh, um, also, you know, but but the other side of it was that when I was thinking, 
looking at the story of the soaps, I was thinking that we haven't really changed that much in the sense of those soaps being pushed as vegetarian and made from, uh, you know, yeah. vegetable oils. And, you know, I, I mean, that purity and that whole thing that we have going on still, right? Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Yeah, that's true. I, I also, I, you know, it's funny because it actually emerged from a time where, you know, the Enfield rifle, for instance, had been such mm. a big trigger for the 1857 revolt, right? Because yes. they didn't know if it was made within casings of animal uh, tissue or not. Um, mm. And that purity debate or that religious sensitivity debate continued with products like soap of all things because it was made with animal fat and mm. that became a big sort of marketing point for companies like Godrich to say we are the first company to be doing soaps in vegetable oil um, mm. but they didn't harp on it they also had German scientists telling you in their uh, pamphlets and in their letters and in their ads in the regional papers that uh this is just a better soap for your skin, period. Like animal fat is bad for your skin. You don't know what is in that animal fat, whereas this mm. is pure. So it was a mix of the religious aspect of using something that is plant-based, as we might say now, and mm. versus something that is scientifically better for your skin because you know what went into it and it's better, cure. you know, it's created in a cleaner way. Mm. Um, and it's funny that we would, continue to have that debate even to this day right even now we have this debate yeah. of, this is uh, kosher this isn't to use yes. uh, another sort of meat term um, yeah. and I think it's because uh, like it's deeply embedded in our psyche like you know why do we still have fairness creams why do we still have mm-hmm. this obsession like why do we link uh, bathing with like a almost a religious function where yes. you're you know you have to like I've heard that people used to bathe and sit and watch the Mahabharat serial, right? Like it's all, <laughs> it's it's like these really idiosyncratic things that don't make sense to any other. If you tell tell this to someone who's not from India, they won't understand. But it is very deeply embedded. Like this is why we put like religious symbols on rockets before we send them out or whatever. Like yeah. you can't divorce this from our uh, idea of identity, I think. And yeah. it was something that these companies sort of figured out very early on um, when they were making these products as well. Hmm. And you do mention how sometimes they like kind of cross the line when you look at them in contemporary terms, because to say that uh, uh, some of the, the rival soaps are made of animal fats is okay, but excreta? Human <laughs> excreta. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that was fact checked, uh, but it was a it was truly like a dhamakedar assertion at, of the time. You know, like, hey, there are pigs. And like, he, they just put together all the grossest things they could find, like pigs and rats and human excreta. Do you still want to bathe with that soap? Obviously not. I'll switch to Godrej. Okay, thanks. <laughs> That's hilarious. I mean, I can't even imagine somebody putting that out. But clearly it must have worked if they did. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it was almost like it's, I, I, I find that it's a brilliant example of do whatever it takes. Like yeah. you want science, here's science. Here's German scientists telling you our soap is better. You want something that's made in a cleaner way with products that are uh, that sit better with your faith. Here's a vegetable oil-based soap. <laughs> you want us to tell you what's in the other soap so that you get away from them and move to our product quickly? Well, here it is. So I think it was literally using every trick in the book to get the means, uh, get the end they wanted. Yeah. And also, you know, it made me, this whole thing, the book made me think about how, you know, things like tea, which, you know, it's clearly British, and but we don't think of it like that anymore. I mean, tea is so dear to us now. And the whole tea and biscuits routine, I mean, it's so much a part of our 
uh, our everyday lives if we don't think about how it didn't actually uh, uh, i mean it, it it was something we adopted right so let's talk about things like that yeah for sure i mean and also like chai and biscuit as we say yeah. is not um, like it's not the aam aadmi snack du jour of that time you know it was like a yeah. very high end thing to do um, yeah. high tea is a concept that probably originated from that time because mm. it, you know tea was expensive it was a product that we started planting in india at that point and it was not available to everybody uh, you know it was not at a price point that everybody could afford uh mm. but uh, and tea with biscuits really was actually like a british snack that we co-opted mm. um and and then it became our own because we started you know like parley famously introduced parley g which was made with glucose yes. um which to this day i mean people will survive on parley g and a banana for lunch you know yeah. uh, people who can't afford more or people who yeah. uh, that's the only lunch they can get at that point so mm-hmm. um it's become like a symbol of nutrition at the bottom of the pyramid in india for some reason but it's also mm-hmm. very famously sort of started as a as a snack for people uh, at that time also nutrition was a concern you know if you could get a biscuit mm-hmm. with glucose why wouldn't you it was yeah. added energy and it was uh, this whole concept of dunking biscuits in tea right like i think mm. uh, i think of that as a very sig- like like a signature indian thing to do uh, yeah but it was it's it's common practice like that's how the tea and biscuits uh, sort of pairing emerged um yeah. and and you have people like uh, i mentioned in the book there's this sindhi uh, sort of biscuit maker called jp mangaram mm. um who you know they migrated here and they uh, set up their business and it did very well the british were eating jp mangaram biscuits you know like at mm. the, at a certain point in the war when uh, uh, i guess resources were scarce or uh, they needed um, sort of they needed everything they could get from the colonies and to to, to fund their uh, war efforts the mm. soldiers were being fed not just your britannia or you know a british uh, branded biscuit but also jb mangaram it was actually very popular mm. with this sort of mm. uh, troops so post partition to sort of emerge as a indian biscuit became a bit of a challenge for this brand because it was so entrenched as a british biscuit of that time um so but that's so strange na given its name i mean what could be more indian than mangaram you know what i mean <laughs> So I'm like really surprised that it went under, you know. Uh, yeah, actually, I I I don't know that it's fair to say that was the reason it went under. It could mm. have been a bunch of other reasons. A lot of yes. companies just went under because, you know, families businesses tend to sort of work that way. Uh, the mm. family doesn't want to continue doing this anymore. They want to do other things, or mm. uh, succession is a problem, or you know, sometimes money is tight. And we do know that in the early days after independence, um, it was a time of a lot of deprivation and scarcity and hunger and uh, a lot of sort of privation so i understand mm. that that might have also led to the demise of some of these brands mm. um uh, so i don't want to sort of uh, conjecture and this but this was one of the brands that came over from uh, from uh, what is now pakistan right? exactly yeah um mm. so uh you know i think it's it's fascinating that uh, i i think that's sort of the key takeaway for me from the book is that uh, you can do your best but there are things happening you know above and beyond uh, your scope which is mm. you know geopolitical things economic sort of uh, uh recessions and sort of the the you know, economy can wax and wane and mm. uh, the people who make the laws in your country can decide to 
changed their mind about a bunch of things about how companies operate and how they pay tax and how you import or export things. Uh, mm-hmm. So it was a great sort of capsule of how to survive in a time when not much is certain because mm-hmm. that uncertainty continues to this day in very in not dissimilar ways. Uh, obviously, mm-hmm. we are uh, independent. Obviously, we uh, elect our government democratically now. But mm-hmm. there are still various other factors that really impact a brand now that you know, reading this book could really help you understand how to take a leaf out of their lessons and put that into your own brand or your own startup or your own company. Hmm. And I suppose for, for, for brands that, you know, that kind of depend on things like um, agricultural produce, you know, uh, something like climate change, it could make them think about how they could, I don't know, deal with, combat with things like that, which are already here, right? And are affecting us. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's a great example of like a huge uh, planet level sort of uh, catastrophe Mm -hmm. that's going to happen to all of us at some point sooner than later. And how do you, like, how are you climate resistant or climate resilient at least uh, Mm -hmm. in a point of time where that's basically a fact? We are going to see a certain amount of uh, global warming and it is going to impact how much land is available for crops and it is going to change the way we eat. So what do yeah. we eat to make sure that, you know, we don't worsen the situation? Like that understanding, I think, is definitely creeping into consumers and hopefully mm. into like people making products as well. Mm. Because that struck me when, you know, there was a bit in in uh, in the book about how people, uh, I don't know whether it's Pale, stop making wheat biscuits, the Monaco biscuits i think at some point you mentioned because of the yeah, war this was when there was scarce. yeah because of the war the supply was scarce you know you couldn't mm-hmm. get wheat so they switched to barley at some point mm-hmm. uh, i can't imagine what a paleji made out of barley might taste <laughs> like but you know to this day my uncle for instance uh, millets are such a superfood right now right like everyone yes. is like switched to millets he can't mm-hmm. stand millets because he's like it reminds me of those days of ration when we couldn't get rice and you would only get mm-hmm. millets and it's associated in his brain with like food when you were poor you know oh my god (laughs) yeah so it's like uh, it's fascinating to see like how I think that's one sector where all bets are really off because food is just so personal and it's so subjective that uh, things that work ordinarily in others other sort of regions or in other sectors can't be easily sort of there's no easy answers here like you literally Mm -hmm. have to just figure out what your specific consumer set wants and mm. offer it to them in the highest quality possible at the best possible price point. Mm. Uh, and like that's as general as a takeaway that you can get for this sector. Mm. And I found the cars chapter like really good, you know. Uh, so oh. let's, let, let's talk about that and, and how having a car at one point, I mean in the 80s and early 90s at least, it wasn't, it was a. It wasn't something that everybody everybody had. Like it wasn't a common thing until then, right? And, and then the whole change with EMIs and the economy opening up is what brought the country. You know, got people buying cars. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, I remember like just a simple way of looking at it is like roads were empty back then. Like I remember. Mm. I grew up in the 80s and I I was getting dropped to school by my dad in a car and he would take 10 minutes to drop me to school and back. And now Mm -hmm. that same distance probably takes you one and a half hours, right? Because it's just, there's just too many cars on the road. (laughs) But, uh, you know, in the turn of the century and in the period that my book looks at, 
Hmm. Cars were actually the one thing that bucked the Swadeshi trend because um, they were the ultimate like accessory of luxury and status, right? Like people hmm. didn't, and and this is the whole truth that explains why the Nano didn't work or whatever, right? Hmm. People didn't buy a car to get from point A to point B. They bought a car because they had arrived. Yes, uh, this showed you how they had arrived, to what degree they had arrived. Uh, mm. So you know, if you could afford a Morris Minor or a Chevrolet or a, a Mercedes or whatever the car of the, the most desirable car of its time was in that era, then mm. that's what you got. You didn't care whether it was made in India or not. Um, so, for instance, at that point, I think when I, the book looks at the era up to the 1950s, for instance. Mm. Tatas were making trucks in conjunction with Mercedes, but otherwise it was Premier and Standard and Hindustan Motors. And, uh, you know, Premier later brought out the very iconic Premier Padmini, but, um, and the Ambassador is a a variation of one of those cars that were available at that time. Hmm. But, Uh, there was no sort of Swadeshi movement in cars. (laughs) No one marketed to people saying buy Indian, you know, drive an Indian car because that's the one sector where it was really like you just go for the car that, you know, you see film stars driving or that you see on screen in movie songs or uh, that you find on the road and you just want to admire because that's it looks cool. So, Mm. um, so actually film advertising was very important to cars of that era because, uh, it was like a luxury product and you advertised yes. it accordingly. It was not put out as a pamphlet or, you know, mm. Gujarati mm. newspaper or something. It was advertised in movies. So you went to the movies, watched it, and then came back dreaming of how you'd own your own car one day. So, But it was, to be fair, like a very 1% thing of its time. Yeah. But uh, also, you know, uh, the aspirational value of it, I mean, it persisted for a long time, right? And, and I, but... I liked how you, somebody in your book mentions how the roads, uh, how public transport was much better as a result. (laughs) You know, these are the things that we've lost, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, uh, trams were very popular in Bombay and I I saw, I found so many evidence uh, that I saw so much uh, sort of, there's so many examples of advertising on those trams or on the tram Hmm. bus stops. Uh, it looks really cool and you wonder like what would Bombay look like if we still had trams for instance you know Uh, we do have excellent local trains not to diss them but uh, (laughs) still (laughs) yeah so tell me what was the most difficult you know what what was the what was the most complicated thing about writing this book oh uh, I think a lot of it was just out of sort of finding authentic fact like uh, reliable information from this time because it was mm. uh, it was an era where uh, so many things happened like you know they didn't have resources they didn't have too much information about consumers and they didn't have too many uh, sort of advertising methods at their disposal but yes they still put out really creative stuff like they 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 did camel processions in Karachi. They <laughs> fried puris at every show, storefront to you know yeah. make make dalda a thing. That um, was because of Gandhi, right? Because yeah, he said that dalda was like poison or something. Yeah, <laughs> there was some rumor that went out in his publication that dalda was not good for you. So they had to quickly combat that and start frying puris at the storefront and serving it to cons- customers like who could taste it and then buy it, uh, which I thought was which I thought was really like that was. A great way to sort of make sure that you combat any uh, negative perception of your brand. Mm. Uh, so, you know, like it's 
they did a lot of really interesting cool things at a time when not much uh, information was available uh, about what the consumer wanted and mm. to then sort of put it all together and you know write really like a write a business history about a specific brand or a specific sector because i cover quite a few of them it's not just the consumer yes. it's not just the you know the biscuits and the soaps and the yes. shampoos or what all the stuff that we consume and know but also like mm. banks and textile banks. and like yeah. shipping you know and to find information across the range of those sectors and the range of these products was quite hard uh, i think also because uh, you know there wasn't much information but also mm. uh, it, it didn't track in a in, it it wasn't tracked or presented in a way that uh really offered insights about the marketing of it it was often done as a mm. as a personal history you know like okay. uh, you, you know octogenarians reminiscing about their past uh through mm. a citizens archive that i accessed for instance or mm. uh, in the case of like academics writing about this their focus was something completely different right like they were looking at the uh they were looking at the sociological or the anthropological mm. aspect of all of this so mm. the branding and marketing thrust was hard to sort of pull out from all these sort of uh, diverse research sources hmm and and what about you know things like uh, you, you know perceptions have changed radically like i remember when uh, when i was growing up also in the 80s it wasn't people used to smoke at home i mean you know like it wasn't considered unhealthy to the extent that you were thrown out <laughs> you know <laughs> which is the case now i mean you you can't be polite and be smoking indoors in somebody's family home right so that sort of thing when when it's it's accepted now that this is a uh, you know this is cancer causing and all that and it, it's a real shift from what it was a couple of a few more than you know say 3 decades ago so what you know what about that you know how did you deal with uh, yeah a lot of that felt a, a distinctly like a madman episode to me you know yes. like <laughs> you know where they are just smoking casually uh, while pregnant or yeah. you know just getting up and trashing their stuff and then moving on without bothering yeah. to dispose it or stuff like that um yeah. yeah i think it was just an era where um you know like today we know that smoking or alcohol or like sugar is the new uh, sort of uh, villain in our diet right like mm. there are things that are um, just uncovered by science that people just didn't know then uh, and yes. and even like even in contemporary society there are certain countries that are very cool with they're okay with smoking in public and uh, you know uh, in france mm. you you'd easily see more people smoking than anywhere else for instance even today like mm. it's not um, it's not an a socially uh, ostracizing behavior mm-hmm. is it, it that it is in many other countries uh, mm-hmm. but i think it's also like uh, so one part of it is the public health aspect which is that it is uh, clearly bad for public health in many ways so it, that's been established so you decide how you want to control consumption of it which you know that obviously makes sense uh, but some of it is also a bit of a um uh, m- missed opportunity in marketing like one of the experts in my book mentions um uh, you know advert- alcohol had the same issue which is that yes. it was seen as a uh addiction that could derail your health in mm. more direct ways than uh, cancer right you could die if you drink drink and die drive mm. so for instance mm. and they sort of sidestep responsibility very clearly in that by saying you drive responsibly you drink responsibly like 
consume but take charge of it don't you know uh find someone to drive you home or whatever which obviously smoking didn't and couldn't do uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's no way to consume uh tobacco responsibly um mm-hmm. but yeah you do see a resurgence of like these um vaping devices and e-cigarettes and stuff which uh maybe goes to show that some consumer behaviors can't be regulated out um mm-hmm. maybe like some things are just cyclical like you know tobacco was bad at at a certain point of time like fat was bad at a certain point of time mm-hmm. now suddenly fats yeah. are good um mm-hmm. uh, that is not to say that you know ignore the cancer warning on your tobacco mm-hmm. pack of cigarettes but Or maybe it's it's like you know i mean my grandfather i remember him taking snuff Now I can't think of anybody in any other generation post that having snuff and being very cool about it. You know, because yeah, it's, yeah. So, it's so it's definitely outside. some of it is uh, like what consumers want, but all, mm-hmm. some of it is also what's presented as desirable behavior, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And I can see how it's it's it might seem like it's cool to uh, jewel or vape, but not smoke a cigarette or not mm-hmm. consume tobacco in other forms, uh, mm-hmm. but. there is research that shows that that's also equally sort of uh, dangerous right you can't escape yeah <laughs> so tell me you know the textiles chapter also about those labels you know i found it very interesting let's talk about that yeah that was very curious to me because like matchboxes also which are another really cool uh, part of the yeah. advertising of that era Yeah. There were you know like these labels that were attached to these bales of textiles or cotton yarn that would come out from these mills um mm. that was ultimately then shipped to a middleman or a mm. warehouse and then mm. sold to like the end consumer or the person who made something out of those textiles. Mm. These labels were never seen by the end consumer like like Ooh. no one wearing those textiles ever got to see these labels it was all meant for the middleman. And oh. I found it fascinating that they invested so much effort in making something so beautiful for mm. someone who was just going to rip that label off. Um and uh, obviously like I wanted to know more about it and it's I mean you should really sort of uh, look up these labels of that of that time because it's gorgeous Ravi Varma art or wow. uh, you know like really um, detailed thematic things like um mm. you know there's goddesses and you know um there's the courtesans of the time which who were big like they were another big uh, design uh, inspiration for mm. matchboxes and labels but mm. also like animals and um, you know like when the swadeshi movement gained uh, traction then uh, these uh, freedom fighters were a theme in, in these labels as well as in matchboxes and wow. uh, sometimes it was complex scenes that were presented you know like a arab trader inspecting the bale uh, and looking at the label very meta very meta. label yeah very meta <laughs> uh, <laughs> so you know that that's inordinate effort and inordinate creativity to be poured into something that's ultimately not going to be seen by the end consumer and some of the mm-hmm. branding and marketing experts in the book have some interesting theories on it which is that you know it, it was meant for the middleman because the middleman would decide which bale Uh, got sold or which bale got uh, pushed out more or it was oh. just a fragile sticker in a mm-hmm. more creative form you know like mm-hmm. treat this carefully because it's made with ca- like a lot of thought and attention and care so mm. uh so yeah and it, it, those things i mean that there, there were exhibitions of those labels held uh in uh, an art gallery in mumbai recently and uh, it, it's really? remarkable how much yeah it's remarkable how much artistic like 
like aesthetic creativity is in those things. I mean, they're they created a work of art, and it wasn't wow. even enduring. It wasn't even enduring in its time, you know. Like it's it's yeah. something that has then. But there was an exhibition at the Victorian Albert Museum uh, of these labels uh, mm. in that era, and then interest in these things sort of ensured that they survived. Um, but it's very yeah. fascinating how they put in so much money and so much effort into something so uh, transient. Yeah, ephemera. It's like those, you know, like how film enthusiasts how have these booklets. And those yeah. cards from the theaters in the twenties, and I suppose yeah. that same sort of, uh, you know, obscure but fascinating bracket. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So great. So I could like keep talking to you because there's so much information and there's so much like fascinating stuff. The first corporate company in the world being that uh, entity in the world. When you say it's like some Japanese. Uh, company and I mean I'm like I, I kind of like marked the book and I said oh <laughs> you've done so much work and it's like fascinating to read so, yeah you know uh, thank you so, so much <laughs> so for the reader go out and get this book it's really um, it's really an enriching read I found and you know it's not pedantic at all thank you Ramya because otherwise some sometimes these books you know by academics you just get bored by the end of it this wasn't like that it's a good read and you constantly want to read more so go out and get uh, branded in history fresh marketing lessons from vintage brands by Ramya Ramamurthy thank you so much for coming on the show thank you Manjula this was amazing <laughs> okay bye bye this was a hindustan times production brought to you by hd smartcast hd smartcast